today is the last actual chapter in my book, Soul Care. And so if you'd like your own physical copy, just go ahead and go to timeofgrace.org store and you'll be able to find it there. Now, chapter 10. Don't let church hurt hurt your faith. I had no intention of including this topic in this book. But then I talked to the third person in two weeks who has left the church over the last several years, mostly because of how they were treated by a pastor or called worker. If this doesn't affect the care of the soul, I don't know what does. I went to the internet to find what the self-help world would suggest, not necessarily in terms of church hurt, but dealing with hurt in general. I found an article in Psychology Today that offered some good suggestions all by needing a few modifications to align it with scripture. Dr. Gregory Jans wrote, Nine Ways to Respond When Someone Hurts You. Here's a summary of what he said, along with my thoughts on it. 1. Investigate a little further. Was it a misunderstanding? Was it intentional or unintentional? Honestly, how many arguments could end right there if we stopped to take stock of the situation? Unfortunately, Jan suggested we listen to our hearts and follow our guts. We already know what God said about the human heart. It's only evil all the time. Better for us to investigate and pray, knowing God knows our motives and the motives of the other person. Second, resist the temptation to defend your position. Simply let the other party know how you feel and give them a chance to respond with the aim being mutual forgiveness. I like that. One, you're going to the other party and letting them know what's bugging you instead of simply walking away without any communication. And two, the goal is forgiveness. Three, give up the need to be right. After all, a disagreement means you disagree on something. That doesn't necessarily mean you are right and the other person is wrong. I wish someone would have sent this piece of wisdom to me every week the first 10 years of my marriage. Four, recognize and apologize for anything you did to contribute to the situation. Again, so wise. Very few situations in life are one-sided. Usually both sides contribute to the chaos. Jesus admonished us to take the plank out of our eye before worrying about the speck in someone else's eye. Matthew 7, verses 3 to 5. By that, he was asking us to do exactly what Jan said and examine how we contribute to the chaos. 5. Respond instead of react. The idea here is not to just say the first thing that comes to mind, extroverts, take note, but rather wait, take the perspective of the other person into consideration for a while, and then, after mulling things over, Determine the best response. Jesus' half-brother James put it this way, Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. James 1, verses 19 and 20. 6. Concentrate on bridge building versus attacking or retreating. Maintain an attitude of love whether or not you agree with the person. That sounds like Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 47. 
You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? 7. Realize you may be the target of someone's anger, but not the source of it. Oh my, if only I knew this five years ago. I would not have taken the attacks I endured personally. The familiar saying is, hurt people hurt people. That's not to say we excuse the other person's bad behavior or condone their actions, but it may change the way we pray and or respond. 8. Create personal limits. The article states that you alone have the right to set boundaries and insist they are followed. Of course, we don't want to let people continue hurting us, and there's nothing wrong with standing up for yourself and or what is right. But the world is quick to live by three strikes and you're out. More recently, we endure cancel culture. If someone says the wrong thing or doesn't act according to your expectations, it's natural to cut them out of your life. Jesus took a different approach. Peter wanted a boundary when he asked Jesus how many times he should forgive. Jesus responded with the parable of the unmerciful servant, Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. His point? God forgives every thought and every word mumbled under our breath, every cruel thing we say, every horrid thing we've done. He asks us to forgive each other in the same way. When we finally understand the great many sins we commit and the debt we could never repay, it shouldn't be so difficult to forgive others. Equally important is realizing the point Jesus was making with the servant who owed much. We are depraved and fall into sin all the time. When it seems unthinkable to forgive someone else for the way they've hurt us, we're often refusing to see how our own sin offends God and hurts others. And last, number nine, if someone hurts you, it need not steal your happiness. The idea is that we can control our emotions, choose to let go of the pain, and move on, regardless of the other party. The Apostle Peter says this, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called. 1 Peter 3, verse 9. He went on to say that God sees and responds. When we are mistreated, it doesn't escape God. When we cry out to him, he hears. Peter encourages us to continue to do what is right and keep clear consciences, even if we suffer for it. So what do we do when bad behavior by a called worker hurts? We forgive, yes, but does that mean we go back? The church is the one place we expect not to be hurt, the one place we hope bad behavior is not accepted or excused. Is leaving church altogether the best option for your soul? What do you do when there's not another Bible-based church nearby or when other factors keep you from venturing elsewhere? The Apostle 
John wrote his gospel after the other three gospels were already written. That's significant because if Matthew, Mark, and Luke had already written about it, he either avoided telling the account again or only filled in details the others didn't cover. As one of the three included in Jesus' inner circle, he gave us insight into experiences others might not have known. I have to wonder if he felt compelled to comfort those who had been hurt by religious leaders. Here's why I say that. John recounted Jesus overturning the money tables early on in his letter, chapter 2. The People's Bible Commentary explains, From every indication, the sellers exploited the people. Greed gathered wealth. Where were the leaders to stop this from happening? In John chapter 3, we meet one, Nicodemus, who was intrigued by Jesus but too afraid to meet him during the day. Jesus challenged him and admonished him, but Nicodemus would not stand alone boldly until after Jesus' death. In chapter 4, we meet the woman at the well. She was not anyone a civilized person would befriend. She was a perpetual screw-up, falling into the hands of one man after the next. Her religious ideology was no better than her lifestyle. But Jesus showed his disciples and us that he came for her too. Chapter 5 tells of Jesus healing a man who had been crippled for 38 years. Since Jesus told the man to pick up his mat, the Jewish leaders complained because it was unlawful by their rules to pick up a mat on the Sabbath day. In chapter 8, the Pharisees brought Jesus a woman, but not the man, who was caught in the act of adultery. They used her to try to trap Jesus. Instead, Jesus showed them their hypocrisy. He then told the woman he would not condemn her and she should leave her sin. In chapter 9, the leaders had a fit because Jesus healed a man born blind. By the end of the book of John, the leaders organized an unlawful meeting in a pop-up court in the dead of night, invoked the crowd against Jesus, and demanded his crucifixion. All that is to say that the church leaders made it hard for people to come to Jesus, but Jesus wasn't bound by their laws, their prejudices, or their greed. He sought the needy and the broken and the lowly. He healed the hurt. People made their way to Jesus despite the leaders and despite the religious persecution they endured. What does this have to do with those of us who may have walked away from a church, school, committee, or whatever else because of those in the church who hurt us? Jesus didn't hurt you. They did. Jesus still wants a relationship with you. The writer of the book of Hebrews encourages us not to give up meeting together. Why? So that we can spur one another on and encourage one another. Hebrews 10 verses 23 to 25 in order that we might persevere. To stop going to church because of the pastor or another leader is to miss all those people who are still in the trenches, all the people who would encourage us and pray for us and love us. It's like swearing off a restaurant because of bad service by one waiter. In the last year, I've driven an hour to work four or even six days a week. I used to think that was unimaginable. Now that I've done it, it isn't so hard. Why do we refuse to inconvenience ourselves even a little to meet with God's people, to join in corporate praise and to hear God's word? God promises his word will do something. He said, 
as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Isaiah 55 verses 10 and 11. The readings and or the sermon text will do something. They may give us hope, strengthen us, cheer us, or admonish us. If we listen with open hearts, the word will work in some way in our lives. Why then are we so quick to turn our backs on church when we've been hurt? I'll tell you why. Because Satan knows there's strength in numbers, and he knows there's power in the word of God. He knows prayers are answered and that the more people learn of God, the more they will love him. Satan's chief aim is to make us lose our faith and make us ineffective. I would love to tell you I have no idea what church hurt feels like. I wish I could say I'm so far removed from it that I can't even recall the emotions. I can't. But I can tell you without hesitation that God is faithful and he will give you what you need to endure. I can positively assure you that Jesus loves the church, as messed up as it is. And the blessing comes when we remain faithful and refuse to let Satan pull us away. In the first chapter, I told you about John Mark, his ministry failure, and the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. A lot of us want to end the story there. They each went their own way. God doesn't expect us to go back or work together. But read on. John Mark had a whole lot of important ministry work to do, and the Apostle Paul eventually saw the man whom he had considered a liability as an asset, a ministry helper, and a friend. God healed and reconciled. He put together what was broken. He can do the same in your situation. Humbly seek him, pray for restoration determined to find a biblically-based church and go all in. Our family didn't return to church for 10 months after our church shut down during COVID. There was a time I wondered if we ever would. Church on the couch was pretty convenient. We could pause and make another cup of coffee and fast forward through the hymns. We listened to several pastors, not just our own. Each week was like selecting a movie. Do you want this service or this one? We watched that last week. Let's try this. In all honesty, the thing that probably held me back most was the 15 pounds I had gained during those 10 months. I distinctly remember thinking maybe I'd lose the weight and then go back. Again, good thing I didn't wait because it didn't happen for almost another two years. You and I need God now. If we wait till everything is as it should be, we'll never go back. I have had very few weeks when I'm feeling put together, but therein lies the beauty of church. We are all struggling and trying and leaning on God and each other. My going back made it that much easier for the next person who stayed home and cooked three meals every day and spent the evening on the couch in front of the TV streaming another episode of something. And if you think you're somehow punishing the pastor or church leader by staying away, I would reconsider. Likely you are losing more than they are. God tells us to let him be the one to settle the score. There have been some struggles since I've returned to church, 
but they are minuscule in comparison to the fellowship we've enjoyed. Rarely a week passes when I'm not hugging someone or someone isn't coming up to me with open arms. I love catching a glimpse of my son talking with his coworker or his gearhead uncle. I rejoice every time I go to the Lord's Supper with my parents or children. What a foretaste of heaven when we will enjoy the communion of all saints of all time. Life is too hard to stay away from the fellowship of believers. Take it from someone who knows. No matter how hard Satan convinces you to the contrary, the joy and love of going back are worth it.